Welcome to You News, the podcast, using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Tuesday, August 17th. I'm Carolina Sarasa, and these are today's headlines. A humanitarian crisis unfolded in Afghanistan. The president defended his decision to remove troops from that country, while the U.S. military outlines a new series of flights to evacuate thousands. More than 1,400 people now confirmed dead in Haiti as torrential rains from a powerful tropical depression impact the island. And with the Delta variant driving a new record of infections here in the U.S., the Biden administration is likely to announce a new round of vaccine boosters. Those details and more today on U News. We begin with the ongoing crisis in Afghanistan. President Joe Biden addressing the nation, doubling down on his decision to end the war after two decades as the Taliban take over and incite fears and chaos in Kabul, scenes of desperation as thousands of people try to escape. Andrea Linares has the latest on the situation on the ground and the U.S. response. I stand squarely behind my decision. After 20 years, I've learned the hard way that there was never a good time to withdraw U.S. forces. As the fallout over the collapse of Afghanistan intensifies, President Biden insisting that bringing U.S. troops home is still the right decision. I will not repeat the mistakes we've made in the past. While he's standing by his exit strategy, the president also acknowledging that the administration was caught off guard by the speed of the Taliban takeover. But Biden also blames his predecessor, claiming the Trump administration's timeline for the drawdown tied his hands, forcing him to follow through or risk reigniting the conflict. And blaming the Afghan forces, saying he gave them every opportunity to fight for their nation, but they failed to protect their homeland. Kabul is now in chaos, and Taliban fighters are now roaming the streets. Meanwhile, about 3,500 U.S. troops are now at Kabul airport securing the perimeter and helping with evacuations. That number expected to reach 6,000 in the coming hours. This as unforgettable images continue to emerge of Afghanis fleeing for their lives. Here, hundreds of Afghans rush the tarmac, clinging to taxiing planes. Masses swarming this boarding ramp, attempting to force themselves on a commercial line. Pilots unable to take off. This picture also going viral. It's a U.S. military C-17 packed from wall to wall with Afghans escaping their country. The mission is of historical significance, and it is incumbent upon us to be resolute in the protection of American and Afghan lives. Today, Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby speaking to CNN. Just on the military craft alone, we believe we can get between five and 9,000 people out per day. Of course, some of that's weather dependent, obviously security dependent. However, many wonder how many people will truly be able to escape. As many as 50,000 Afghanis remain in the nation. The Pentagon saying they will try to get 22,000 vulnerable Afghans out under its special immigrant visa program. Kirby also issuing this warning to the Taliban. Any attack on our people, or on our operations at the airport will be met with a swift and forceful, un un unambiguous response. Today, some Democrats are even calling for answers. The head of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Mark Warner, vowing to investigate why the U.S. was not better prepared for, quote, a worst-case scenario. 
As to how the U.S. is preparing for all this, well, President Biden has authorized the State Department to use up to $500 million in emergency funding to help Afghan refugees. Immigration officials are being deployed to Texas, Wisconsin, and California, where U.S. officials say they're making space for thousands of Afghanis. As of now, evacuations are to take place up until August 31st, so time is of the essence. In Miami, Florida, Andrea Linares, U News. And thank you, Andrea, for that report. And to understand more, we are joined by Emily Harding. She's a deputy director and senior fellow of International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Welcome to U News. Thank you. Now, after decades of a strong U.S. military presence in Afghanistan, trillions of dollars spent, the Taliban takes control in just a matter of days. How did this happen? I think a lot of books will be written on the subject of how this happened over the coming years, so it's really too early to give a definitive answer. Initial indications, though, are that the Afghan forces out in the regional capitals made a decision about whether or not it was worth the fight or whether it was not. For a lot of those forces, it would have been a suicide mission to try to push back against a Taliban advance, especially when they knew for certain that the American forces would not be coming to support them. Uh, I think the advance of the Taliban was more rapid than was predicted, but not dramatically more rapid. Estimates ranged from six months to one month, and in the end, it was much faster than that. Now we have all seen heartbreaking images coming out of that country. What do you see as the major concern for Afghans as the Taliban resumes control? The Taliban are saying a lot of the right things about how they're going to attempt to govern the country. But at this point, I don't think that those claims have any credibility whatsoever. For the Afghans on the ground, especially the women and the, the young girls, they have to be concerned about what their life is going to be like in the coming months and the coming years. Um, the girls have been able to go to school for the past decade and maybe suddenly are, are forcing a future where they cannot go to school anymore. Uh, the scenes out of the airport are heartbreaking, and I think the biggest challenge is going to be not just the airlift. The American military is very good at its job. It's very good at moving airplanes in and out of contested territory. But those Afghans just getting to the airport, just moving their way through the countryside and moving through those crowds at the airport to actually secure a spot on those airplanes is going to be a tremendous challenge. Do you think the U.S. has either a legal or moral responsibility when it comes to evacuate those people left behind in Afghanistan? Absolutely. I think we have a moral responsibility to those who fought alongside us. Um, I read a story just yesterday about a soldier who was thanking an Afghan interpreter for saving his life when he was about to step on a mine. That interpreter putting himself in harm's way to push one of our soldiers out of the way. And those people who fought along beside us, they did so with a hope in their heart that the future of their country would be bright. And because they helped us, they are now on a Taliban hit list. We have a moral responsibility to try to get them out of the country. After the failed Soviet invasion of, of Afghanistan in the 1980s and now a failed U.S. mission after 20 years in the country, are there any lessons to take away about how the U.S. engages or should not engage in military interventions abroad? Absolutely. Um, one of the wonderful things about being an American is our tremendous optimism that the future will be bright. I think having very clear discussions about what is possible in a country like Afghanistan and what kind of system is going to best fit those people and their troops. 
Uh, one of the biggest challenges in Afghanistan turned out to be the support the Taliban was getting from surrounding nations, um, Iran, Pakistan. I think the discussion that the, the Taliban leaders had with China right before this last offensive was a clear sign that other countries were stepping up to back the Taliban and that our support for the Afghans was fading. And that's how the balance of power tipped. Emily Harding from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, thank you so much for your time and for your insights today. Thank you. Now with hospitals nearing capacity across the country, the Biden administration is expected to announce a change in recommendation saying booster shots of the COVID-19 vaccine should be taken by most Americans. Lorraine Casares has details on this latest development in the fight against the pandemic. A twist in the fight against COVID-19. The Biden administration now reportedly expected to recommend booster shots for most Americans eight months after the second dose. That's according to two sources familiar with the discussions. For those who got a COVID-19 vaccine in December and January, that means the time for a booster is now. One source said the plan would involve administering third shots beginning in September, pending authorization from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. The news coming after federal health officials for weeks have been saying booster shots might be needed at some point in the future, but they were not necessary right now. On Monday, Pfizer sent its initial data on boosters to the FDA, saying the findings support the use of a booster dose for its COVID-19 vaccine, claiming they work well against the coronavirus and its variants. The WHO reacting, saying holding off on boosters would better serve the global population in fighting the pandemic. What our recommendation is, is that all of the world's most vulnerable and those who are most at risk, health workers, uh, need to receive their first and second doses before large proportions of the population or all of the population in some countries receive that third dose. Meanwhile, the debate over even getting vaccinated at all continues. In Maine, dozens protesting for days after the governor announced a mandate forcing healthcare workers to get vaccinated. I'm not anti-vax per se, but we all should have a choice. We live in America and we have the right to our freedom and we shouldn't be forced to get anything that we don't feel comfortable doing. New York State issuing a similar mandate Monday, a move announced weeks ago in New York City, where today proof of vaccination is required for most indoor activities. Look at the NYC app. I've got it on my phone. Uh, you know, you've got your ID and your vaccination card, you know, a photo of each on your phone. You just show two screens and you're done. It, it takes you know, a matter of seconds. So I think cultural institutions will be able to navigate this well. We'll provide support and training if anyone needs. And in the U.S. nationwide on Monday, we saw reported 209,000 cases of coronavirus. That's the third time in a month that we see those kinds of numbers. On the side for children in the last week alone, we've seen an increase of 121,000 cases, pediatric cases. That's why so many states in the South are seeing ICU units for children um, full to capacity. In the discussion about masks in schools, the governor of Tennessee has been the latest to speak out on that matter. Yesterday, he announced that he's giving parents, he's mandating parents have the option to opt out any local requirements for kids to wear masks in school. He did follow his announcement by pleading with residents in Tennessee to please consider taking the COVID-19 vaccine. Carolina, back to you.
Thank you, Lorraine, for that live report. And today we are also learning that children under the age of three may be more likely than older kids to spread COVID-19 in their families. According to a study published Monday in JAMA Pediatrics, Canadian researchers studied the spread of the virus in more than 6,200 households. And while they found that older kids often actually brought the virus home, toddlers were more likely to spread the virus to other family members. The Canadian COVID researchers say the obvious solution is to get family members over the age of 12 vaccinated as soon as possible. And as the COVID-19 Delta variant continues to spread, the National Park Service announced it is immediately enforcing new rules on the mandatory use of a mask. Visitors, employees and contractors are now required to wear a mask inside all park service buildings and even in crowded outdoor events. The rule applies no matter what a person's vaccination status is and regardless of the transmission levels within that community. The Park Service says it is following the latest science and guidance from the CDC and the new requirement will be in effect until further notice. Meanwhile, for so many who have gone hungry because of the pandemic, a new move by the White House regarding food stamps could make all the difference. Luis Mejid explains how. Among all the awful things that were brought by the pandemic, it also came hunger. The number of families living on food stamps jumped from 37 to 42 millions in just a few months. And even with extra aid, for many the stamps didn't last to the end of the month. Well, now there is some good news. The Biden administration has raised the food stamp benefit 25% higher than its pre-pandemic level. The average person will receive $157, up from $121. Some advocates say the timing couldn't be better now some of the emergency aid is ending at the same time that food prices are rising. The truth is the pandemic hasn't ended and those who don't qualify for stamps will have to survive through food bank donations. The hard times are not over yet. In San Francisco, Luis Mejid, U News. And in other news out of Washington, the Justice Department is appealing a court decision from earlier this summer that temporarily blocked the Biden administration's pause on new federal oil and gas leases. In June, the court sided with more than a dozen states that sued after President Biden directed the administration not to issue new leases for oil and gas drilling in offshore waters and on public lands. While a review of leasing practices is underway, that preliminary court injunction came as a blow to the administration as it was now on Biden's key actions to address climate change. And the ransomware attack that took Colonial Pipeline offshore also appears to have compromised the personal information of 5,800 individuals. Colonial has started sending breach notification letters to affected people, including current and former employees and their families. In that letter, the fuel pipeline company warns hackers may have access to everything needed to commit identity theft. That includes their names, contact information, birth dates, social security numbers, driver's licenses, and even health insurance. The company says it is still investigating that incident.
And Haiti has declared three days of mourning for earthquake victims after officials announced that at least 1,419 people were killed in that tragedy. Saturday's 7.2 magnitude quake brought down tens of thousands of buildings in the deeply impoverished country, which is still recovering from another major earthquake 11 years ago, along with the assassination of its president, Jovenel Moïse, last month. Meanwhile, on Monday, tropical depression grace impacted Haiti after nightfall. Heavy rain and strong winds impacted the country's southwestern area. That was the hardest hit area most affected by the recent earthquake. Officials warned that rainfall could reach 15 inches in some areas before the storm moved on. Meanwhile, tropical storm Fred brought heavy rains over the southeast U.S. Fred's maximum sustained winds had weakened after a landfall late Monday and were at 40 miles per hour. Thousands of Florida Panhandle residents were reported without power. And there is yet another storm to watch out for, Henry, which formed Monday near, Monday near Bermuda and now the eighth named storm of the Atlantic season. And out west, severe drought conditions have resulted in the Colorado River's first water shortage. On Monday, federal officials announced mandatory water cuts on the river. This comes after two-year projections for Lake Mead show the water level dropping below critical levels. These August predictions help determine what next year's operating conditions will be like for those waterways. The report predicts declines in Lake Mead and Lake Powell and that the entire Colorado River system shortage is at 40% of its capacity. Lake Mead's water is used by approximately 25 million people in Arizona, California, Nevada, and Mexico. And along the U.S.-Mexico border, migrants are increasingly being arrested for trespassing on private property. And as Eileen Cardet explains, critics say those charges are specifically and potentially illegally designed to target those people. Are you guilty or not guilty? Yes, I am guilty. In a hearing, 23 migrants plead guilty to breaking into private property after crossing the border in southern Texas. The state of Texas charges Leonel González Verde with the crime of trespassing. The migrants were arrested by the Texas Department of Public Safety in Del Rio after resident complaints. Because people have crossed onto their properties, damaged or broken their fences, and that's why we're laying those charges. The arrest began two weeks ago with the operation Lone Star, activated by Texas Governor Greg Abbott to try to curb the influx of migrants into his state. It is illegal because immigration laws are federal laws. The state doesn't have the right to create a new criminal immigration system. They can give you jail time and it can be from one day to 365 days. The accused migrants signed guilty agreements with the prosecutor's office and the judge released them with a light sentence. They will give you 15 days in jail, however, they will take into account the time you have been detained. 
I have to warn that there is always a danger that they can be deported or denied entry into the United States if they continue with their cases. The judge also warned the migrants that by declaring themselves guilty of this crime, they put their future immigration processes, including applications for citizenship, at risk. These migrants' arrests are lengthening the days in court. It has given me a lot more work, yes, however, I just want to be sure that these people's rights are protected. ICE has not responded to Univision about whether it will immediately deport these migrants or release them to follow their migration cases in the United States. Aileen Cardet, Yunus. And further south, anguish and disappointment for more than 500 Central American migrants who were deported to southern Mexico. Now, many of those people are trapped in Guatemala. Jorge Hernandez has more on their stories. They arrived disoriented and sad. Most of these deported migrants are upset to find out that in a matter of hours, they were taken from South Texas to Mexico and then Guatemala. We never knew we were being deported. The gringos never told us anything. Nearly 500 deported migrants a day arrive at the El Sabo border crossing in Guatemala. Truck after truck arrives after an approximately five-hour trip from Villahermosa, Tabasco, Mexico, where they were taken by plane from Texas. We have been deceived. They tricked us. Now, what are you going to do? Are you going to go back? No, I'm going home. Once in Guatemala, people who brought Mexican pesos or have dollars left from crossing into the United States exchange them for quetzales, the Guatemalan currency. <laughs> Others burst into tears when they find themselves without money, without food, and in the middle of the street with everything and their children. And now you suddenly find yourselves in the middle of nowhere. Yes, and we don't know what to do. Some say that the U.S. authorities treated them badly. All the sacrifice we made all the way, to be kicked out like animals. Those who bring money travel by bus to Santa Elena, the Guatemalan city closest to this border. How many hours is it from here to Santa Elena? Five hours. The rest have to sleep in the street or fight for a space in a shelter that has capacity for only 50 people. The thought of going back, they say, is no longer in the plans. I would rather live humbly in my country with my family, with my children, than to expose them to such a risk again. Not anymore. Reported by Pedro Ultreras in El Ceibo, Guatemala, this is Jorge Hernandez, U News. Now in Los Angeles, there's new controversy over homeless camps located near many public schools in that county. Jenny Aponte explains. The first day of face-to-face -face classes in Los Angeles was marked by the announcement of a controversial measure that seeks to ban homeless camps on sidewalks within 500 feet of all city public schools. And by full city council. City Councilman Joe Buscaino made the announcement outside a school in Los Angeles. Protesters advocating for homeless rights came to the press conference, leading to a confrontation between a member of the councilman's staff and the protesters. This grandmother who comes to pick up students after school says she agrees with the measure. Not even 500 feet, more. That's why the government is building apartments, for them, but they don't want them, they like the bad life. But this teacher argues that it is a political strategy by the councilman who is running for mayor. I 
I believe there are smart measures that could be implemented. If we really want to clean around the schools, instead of criminalizing people that need help, we should instead specialize the help to the people near the schools. This sidewalk ban could include 1,000 schools and would be part of the measure that was approved by the council to ban homeless camps on sidewalks and places considered sensitive, such as parks, libraries, and daycare centers. Reported by Dulce Castellanos, this is Gianni Aponte for U News. More of U News after the short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the story from home and abroad that matter to you. That would essentially put an end to the longest war in U.S. history. This is the interior of a stash house that we found in this right along today. State authorities recommend avoiding them at night. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. In Mexico, as the coronavirus pandemic continues taking deadly tolls, we're seeing another major issue affecting tens of thousands of people, the persistent effects of the so-called long COVID. Paula Gomez has more from Mexico City. Thousands of patients recovering from COVID have won a battle, but not the war. Nearly 80% of people who have been infected in Mexico have reported side effects. It left neurological and heart damage in my body. So far, the effects COVID left are pericarditis, neuropathies and hair loss. Current research has found that COVID can leave at least 200 side effects in multiple organs like the lungs, heart, brain, kidney and intestines. The most frequent are chronic fatigue and migraines, but also psychological consequences like depression, anxiety and sleep issues as it attacks neural structures. I am referring to the nervous system which is the brain and the backbone and all the peripheral nerves. That is why it can involve physical symptoms, organic ones in any organ. A relationship has been found between COVID and certain long-term side effects. For instance, people with minor symptoms like the loss of smell and taste is because the virus reached the frontal lobe in the brain. There are patients that even don't know they had COVID and have symptoms we can't explain. After being tested for antibodies, it comes back positive. To combat all these side effects, the doctor recommends one thing only. Avoid getting sick and avoid the disease before it becomes acute. And the only useful way to do that is getting vaccinated. Paulina Gomez-Bulshiner in Mexico City, U News. In other news, out of Mexico, at least 22 people were injured Monday in Mexico City after a building exploded. According to the head of government of Mexico City, six of them were taken to a hospital. Authorities believe there was a gas leak on the second floor, which led to that explosion. They also claimed that 300 people from, from nearby buildings were evacuated as a safety precaution. And here's a question. Could you imagine an economy without paper, currency, or coins? Well, next month, El Salvador will become the first country in the world to adopt Bitcoin as an official tender. The move has created controversy in the Central American nation, but as Angie Sandoval explains, in a remote village not too far from the capital, Bitcoin is changing lives. Outside the National Assembly, where recently Bitcoin was approved as legal currency, 
Street vendor Ana Mejia tells me she understands very little of what this digital currency is all about. And she adds, she worries for her business. 20 years after Salvador dolarized its economy, this small Central American country of about 6.5 million people is about to add Bitcoin as their official currency. Bitcoin is a financial system, says Alejandro de la Torre, virtual money without any government regulation or bank. It is totally free. Bitcoin is a virtual coin which can be seen or handled. It can be used to purchase any goods or services like regular currency, but it is acquired downloading an app and kept in a digital wallet. According to Salvadorian President Nayib Bukele, this digital currency has many advantages. Among them, he says, it will help 70% of the people in El Salvador who never had a bank account keep their money safe. Bukele is basing his opinion on life in El Zonte, a small village in El Salvador's Pacific coast, where 60% of its population has been using Bitcoin for the past three years. For us, Bitcoin means hope. It's a fundamental tool for future generations, says Jorge Valenzuela. Valenzuela is one of the founders of the Bitcoin project in El Sonte, a small beach town with dirt roads only known not too long ago by surfers and nature enthusiasts. Standing in line, we found Gustavo waiting to get paid. He said he got 120 satoshis. That's the smallest unit of Bitcoin, the equivalent of about $50. When I asked him why he prefers using Bitcoin over dollars, he told me he's able to save because it is not paper money. But many economists like Lourdes Molina warn about saving Bitcoin. It is very risky, she says, because of its volatility. Last April, one Bitcoin represented $63,000. Two months later, in June, its value plunged 50 percent. According to economists, another drawback of implementing this digital currency in a country like El Salvador is the lack of Internet connectivity and technological education. Dora Guerrero and her mother own a small fish restaurant in El Sonte. The goal of the government is that more people will adopt Bitcoin as their coin like this workers. But here in El Salvador, not many people are convinced. Many people don't own cell phones, she told me. They live in remote areas, so this technology is for the young. According to recent polls, 70% of Salvadorians reject this digital coin. In spite of this, next month the government here will require all businesses to accept Bitcoin as they have done with the dollar for the past 20 years. In San Salvador, El Salvador, Angie Sandoval, U News. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.